Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning we're continuing our sermon series on mercy. And our first week, we looked at how we can only give mercy if we understand the mercy that we have received. And so we looked at the story of the prodigal son, or perhaps better, the prodigal father. A father who gives everything that he has, who loves his children with such grace and mercy that he's willing to sacrifice everything. Last week, we looked at mercy in our homes at how easy it can be to build up walls and seek revenge rather than seeking reconciliation and offering forgiveness to those we love. We looked at the story of Joseph, a man who was sold into slavery by his brothers. I can't say that my siblings can top that one. (laughs) But as he stood as second in command in all of Egypt, with his brothers bowing before him, these men who had mistreated him, who had hated him, who had wanted him dead, he had the opportunity to deal out wrath and punishment. But instead, he recognized God's purposes and God's mercy in his life. And so while he acknowledged the hurt that they had caused, he also reached out in love and forgave his brothers, just as we are called to forgive those we love the most and those who hurt us the most. Today, we're going to be looking at mercy in our church. And I think there's a special set of difficulties that go along with being a mercy-filled church And I'm going to show you why I think that is. As I was thinking about this this week, I had a commercial pop into my mind that I think perfectly captures the difficulties of being a mercy-filled church. And so if you would, we're going to take a moment to watch that. Switching to GEICO really saved you 15% or more on car insurance. Was Abe Lincoln honest? Does this dress make my backside look big? As we watch that brief clip, I should also comment, Geico received no money for this advertisement, but but as we watch that brief clip, we see Abe Lincoln, honest Abe, caught in kind of a no-win situation, right? This is honest Abe, a man who always has to tell the truth. And as he stands there, his wife asks him a question that he doesn't want to give a truthful answer. And so we see him in the background hemming and hawing and pondering exactly how he can lovingly speak this truth. How he can speak the truth in love. And frankly, I think that phrase, speaking the truth in love from Ephesians 4.15, I think that phrase is at the center of both the difficulties 
and the blessings of being a mercy-filled church. Now, I think I should clarify, the truth that we are called to speak is a little more important than the truth that we see Abraham Lincoln struggling with in that clip. The truth we're called to speak is not really concerned with the size of your waistline or how you look in a dress, or in a suit for that matter. The truth that we're speaking is not really concerned with where you came from, who was in your family, where you went to school, how much money you make, where you work. Now this truth is concerned with something far more lasting. This truth is focused on things that have eternal consequences. And I think those important ramifications, the importance of the truth we have to speak often makes it even a little bit more daunting. Because we know that Christ and His salvation matter for eternity. They don't just matter for today. They don't just matter for tomorrow. They matter for the rest of our lives and even beyond. And it can be intimidating to speak that truth. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, at least in one of the services, that I worked at a daycare in the summers growing up. And it was quite the operation. We had over 150 kids every single day and about, I'd say, 20 to 30 staff, somewhere in there who would rotate in and out depending on the day, a couple of regulars. And one of those regulars who I got to know pretty well was a man named James. James was significantly older than me. I realized as I was preparing this sermon that I never asked James how old he actually was. My guess would be that he was 10 to 15 years older than me, so late 20s, early 30s. And James had been working at this daycare for who knows how long, probably since I would have been old enough to actually be going to the daycare rather than working there. And he was one of those people that just demanded respect. The kids absolutely worshipped this man because he was a great guy. And he loved this daycare. To put in perspective just how much he loved this daycare, by the time I knew James, he actually lived and worked over two hours away from the daycare. He worked as a college professor in a small town in Missouri, but during the summers when he had off, for four days out of the week, he would drive back into Kansas City, back to where he was from, and he would stay in Kansas City Monday through Thursday. He'd pack a small little bag, and he would be there first thing in the morning, 7 o'clock, bright and early, and stay until 5, and wrestle around with the kids, play with the kids, and also show the kids what it meant to live a good life. Like I said, these kids loved him, and you could tell that some of these kids he'd been watching and caring for for years. He worked almost exclusively with the older kids at the daycare, the 7th and 8th graders, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, 
And you could tell that he had watched them when they had been the little four-year-olds toddling around their first steps at Rainbow. He was strict. He demanded a certain level of, of, of obedience. Certainly none of the kids wanted to cross James. But he also was loving. And they knew that James always had their back, that he always had their best interest in mind. And in fact, as those summers went by, I learned that James had my back too. And in fact, we became very close friends. I would even consider him a mentor, someone who I looked up to, whom I respected. But there was only one problem. I don't remember when I found this out or even how I found this out. But one of the summers that I was working at this daycare, I found out that James was not a Christian. In fact, James was a religious Jew. Someone who considered the New Testament to be a document full of lies, who considered Christ to be a charlatan and a fraud who did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. And finding this out ate at me. Because I knew that I had a difficult truth to speak to my friend. Because if we take the words of scriptures true as true, then we know that for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. That Christ alone is the way to the Father. And this man, this friend, this mentor, this person that I loved did not know Christ's mercy in his life. And that was a problem. But every time I had the opportunity to share this truth, this good news of salvation with my friend James, I found myself hemming and hawing like Abe Lincoln in that video. What if I don't say the right words? What if our friendship is ruined off of this conversation? What if he doesn't believe even though I tell him? What if he gets angry with me? What if, what if? Until one day, that two hour drive in, that time away from his home, away from his family, it became too much for James. And one summer, he simply stopped working at our daycare. And I never got the chance to tell him this truth that he needed to hear. Speaking the truth of Christ's mercy can be a difficult prospect. 
It's all too easy to sit back and let those opportunities pass us by. But speaking the truth in love can also be a challenge. And I think we know that. As a family, as a family in Christ, I think we can think back to far too many times where we were petty, where we found ourselves bickering over things that maybe didn't matter, where instead of focusing on Christ's mercy in our lives, this deep and abiding mercy, this mercy that he gives to sinful human beings of all sorts, we find ourselves speaking out in anger rather than love. But if we believe that this love of Christ really has an impact in our lives, if we really believe that this mercy is so far-reaching that it changes us, that in our baptisms we are made into new people, then we are called to be a church that is just filled with mercy. As part of this study, Barna actually did a study to see how the church's mercy compared to the mercy of the world. How our compassion looked compared to the compassion of people who did not know Christ. And they looked at four different categories to try to measure this. They asked people how they felt compassion for those who were in distress, those who were poor, for people who had wronged them personally, who had committed a sin of some sort against them and how they felt compassion for criminals. And as they did this survey, this is the information they came back with for the world. They determined that 52% of non-Christians felt active compassion for those who were in distress. 46% of non-Christians felt compassion for the poor. 9% of non-Christians felt compassion for someone who had sinned against them, who had hurt them personally. And only 6% of the world viewed criminals as someone in need of compassion, of love, of mercy. But what about the church? How does the church that has been so filled with Christ's mercy compare, at least in this survey that Barna did? For those in distress, 55%. For the poor, only 50%. For someone who has wronged us, 13%. For criminals, only 9%. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we truly believe that we are sinful and that Christ's mercy has made us righteous, that Christ's mercy has changed our lives, shouldn't we be showing mercy more fully? 
Shouldn't Christ's church be looking at the world and seeing people just like Christ did who are sheep without a shepherd, who are harassed and helpless, who desperately need that love and forgiveness and mercy that only Christ can give? In that gospel reading from Matthew that we read a few moments ago, we read that Christ had compassion on the crowds. And the Greek word that is used there is splagnizomai. And it doesn't just refer to some kind of passing compassion, it refers to a gut kind of feeling. That kind of feeling when you look out at the world around you and you know that things just aren't right. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of love that Christ has for you, and that's the kind of love that we're called to have for both one another and the world around us. We're supposed to have that gut love, that love that ventures where other people won't go, that ventures into hospital rooms and sick beds, that sits with those people who are in desperate need of love and care. The kind of love that sees someone sitting under a bridge, holding up a sign, and feels this intense wrong in this situation, that knows that that is a person that needs Christ's love, that needs care, that needs mercy. the kind of love that looks at those people who have hurt us the most and says, yes, I have been hurt. Yes, I need love and I need care, but so do you. And let me tell you about this mercy that I have seen and the mercy that you need. Yes, this is the kind of gut love that even looks in prison cells and sees someone in need of Christ's forgiveness, of Christ's mercy. Speaking in love is not always easy, nor is it even always comfortable. But it is part of the life to which we have been called because of the mercy we have received. And so as we think about speaking the truth in love, as we think about this difficult thing to grasp, an even harder thing to live, I think we always need to turn our eyes to God's ultimate expression of truth and love. When we think about Jesus, certainly we think about his love, but we also need to remember that he was a man who spoke the truth. And sometimes that truth was hard to hear. In fact, Jesus would even call himself the truth. In John 14, verse 6, he would say to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a difficult truth. A truth that the world doesn't necessarily want to hear, that this Jesus is the Son of God. 
that he is the only means by which we are saved, that he is the only one who can give out mercy. And in fact, as Jesus spoke these words, as he repeatedly spoke the truth of God's kingdom into the lives of the people around him, we see that that truth was not always received. That instead of people clinging to that mercy that Christ was trying to show, instead of people walking in his way, he was met with anger, with hatred, with mockery, with whips, with nails, with a cross. And yet even as he hung there, giving his life for the sins of the world, as people heaped curses and abuses on him, as they continued to laugh and mock at this Messiah, his heart was breaking for them. His blood was being shed for them. And so he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the kind of love, the kind of truth that we are called to speak as people who have been shaped by that mercy of Christ. But how do we do that? How do we really go about speaking that truth and that mercy and that love into both our lives and the lives of the world? Barna came up with a few ways that they thought would be helpful, and I maybe twisted them a little bit to make it an easier to remember acronym, LOL, listen, obey, and love. And really, James is the one that walks us through all these things. This is why the book of James is so helpful for us as Christians, because it really reminds us again and again of what that Christian life looks like, of what it looks like to be a mercy-filled people, a people who have just had that mercy of Christ rush onto them. And it starts with listening. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are called to be a people that listen, that listen to one another, and that listen to the people in our lives. More than that, we are to be a people that listen peacefully. We are called to be in the lives of the people around us, to walk with them, to hear their stories, to know where they're coming from. And rather than speaking out in anger, we're called to listen in love that the gospel might have fertile ground. 
we're also called to obey. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James uses the example of someone who looks in a mirror and sees their face and sees their true reflection. But oftentimes we don't like what we see in the mirror, right? (laughs) Oftentimes the mirror reflects something a little too true and so we walk away and we forget what we were supposed to look like. James says we cannot do that as Christians. As people that have been shaped by Christ's mercy, we are called to remember his words to us, to remember what he has done for us, and to live that out. Again, always for the sake of the gospel, not just to be righteous for some obscure reason, but so that the gospel might be received. So that as people look at our lives, as Paul writes, the gospel might not be hindered, but that God's truth might shine clearly for all to see. We're called to listen and to obey. And lastly, we're called to love. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well, James writes. We are called to be a people that recognize our own sin and see the sin of the world around us and love them anyway. We are called to be a people that loves one another, a people that has been shaped and molded by the great love of Christ. And a church that shares that mercy and love with the world. Yes, it can be difficult to speak the truth in love. But because of Christ's love, because of Christ's mercy, we are called to love each other enough to speak the truth. Amen. And may the peace and love of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard and keep your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.